It is time for midday. It's 1130 here at KRBN. Thanks for making us a part of your day, wherever you may be listening. I'm Tyler Cavalli, and we're certainly glad to be a part of it. Beautiful day on tap yet again. We're seeing mostly 60s here across the region in Nebraska. A couple 50s still lingering in the western region. Down in Kansas, a mix of 60s and 70s. Northeast Colorado warming up as well. And uh, that trend continuing from what we have seen Earlier this week, of course, we'll get more on the weather from Paul here in just a little bit. Jam-packed afternoon. So let's hear from Shaylee Peters as she actually is filling in for Susan Littlefield. Yeah, stepping in for Susan today. We've kind of got people everywhere with the farm shows going on. And uh, NAFB is underway for us. Of course, we're not down there this year. It's the virtual uh, virtual event this year, but still jam-packed day full of uh, trade talk and other good information coming. So I'm stepping in for Susan, and we have a great midday lined up. We'll hear from Alex Wojcicki at 12:19. She'll be visiting with the National Biodiesel Board's Greg Anderson, and then Susan will be in at 12:45. We'll talk some ag policy and hear more about what's going on, changes being made in D.C. From Jay Truitt, and then I'll have the 117 today. Hearing more from UNL's Travis Mullenix. Body condition scores, it's that time of year. You're definitely going to want to be paying attention to them. So a full midday from the farm team, Scott. All right, thank you very much, Shaley. Sure appreciate it. Well, let's turn it over to sports as UNK basketball. They start their brand new season today. Jason, what do you have for us? Hey, thanks, Tyler. Well, the very young Nebraska offense will continue to try to make improvements this weekend. If you didn't know it or not, Nebraska had eight freshmen at one point or another on that side of the ball in Saturday's win against Penn State. We'll get the thoughts of offensive coordinator Matt Lubick about their uh, progress. Also, it's UNK basketball tonight in Kearney as the Loper women and men open up their shortened season against Emporia State. Women's game at 5.30, men's game at 7.30. We will have both of those games for you tonight on 93.1 The River and on 106.9 FM in and around Kearney. Now, keep in mind, no fans will be allowed at the games. The only fans that will be allowed there our immediate family members of the coaches and the players. We're finally starting to learn more about the Nebraska men's basketball schedule. The Huskers have a tough slate in conference action. Of their 20 scheduled games, 10 of those will be against teams ranked in the top 25 in the AP preseason top 25 poll. And they are looking seriously at delaying the winter sports season in Kansas. The final vote will happen early next week, but it looks like they're headed in that direction. Basketball season would be just 13 games, and they wouldn't start games up until the middle of January. We'll see if eventually that spills over on into the decisions made by the NSAA in Nebraska. All of that and much more is coming up on sports. All right, thank you very much, Jason. Sure appreciate it. Let's turn it over to Dave Schroeder as he is stepping in for Bob Brogan and previewing the business report today. Stocks, yes. uh, how are they doing so far? Well, stocks ha- were lower in early trading uh, this morning as mounting coronavirus infections and evidence of the damage being caused to people's livelihoods rolls in. The number of Americans seeking unemployment aid rose last week for the first time in five weeks. That's the latest sign that a resurgence in virus infections is leading employers to cut jobs. So uh, some interesting developments there. Okay, very good. We look forward to all of that and more coming up on midday here, coming up in the next uh, hour to two hours or so. But it's time now. Let's turn it over to Clay Patton. 
It is time for a regional ag weather update brought to you by Holdridge Irrigation. Here's Paul Perkins. With your ag weather, I'm Paul Perkins. After a very mild day today, temperatures tomorrow will be in the 50s with north winds and cloud cover on the increase just ahead of low pressure. Changes are on the way for our weekend with chances for rain and some snow mixed in. Forecast models now trending the area of low pressure a lot farther to the south. As a result, precipitation chances now expected to be lower for tomorrow night into Saturday night. Any precipitation expected to fall as mostly rain, but there could be some snow mixed in. Little to no snow accumulation is expected. Expected. The average for total precipitation also predicted to be lower. It should be about a less than a quarter of an inch on average, and some locations can actually remain completely dry. Weekend daytime highs will be much cooler, but closer to seasonal in the 40s. Winter weather impacts will be minimal with another system as we head towards Monday night into Tuesday. For Wednesday through the Thanksgiving holiday weekend, we are looking at mostly dry conditions with nearer to above normal temperatures. The milder temperatures verify for even longer in the long-term forecast. Warmer than normal temperatures remain likely for Nebraska and Kansas. Tuesday through the first two days of December, a mainly dry outlook of below normal precipitation is predicted from Tuesday through December 2nd for both Nebraska and Kansas. In the latest regional drought monitor, all of Nebraska continues to be at some level of dryness. North central Nebraska, the least dry with abnormal dryness. Much of the state remains in moderate to severe drought. Nearly all of the panhandle continues to be the driest with extreme drought. Kansas dropped 5 percentage points to 12% drought-free, with counties along the Oklahoma border from Ashland to the southeast corner not experiencing any dryness. Most of Kansas abnormally dry to a moderate drought. Smith Center to the northwest corner and Kansas counties along the Colorado border remained in severe to extreme drought. 74% of the state of Colorado is in extreme to exceptional drought. Key weather factors driving the markets include timely rain falling in central Brazil and a promising forecast for rain in central Argentina. Most of the Midwest will remain dry through the end of the week, conditions that will favor the final stage of harvest. Moderate rain is in store for the south and east Midwest over the weekend. The southern plains will continue with windy and dry weather the next couple of days, adding more stress to winter wheat, something that will be watched. Periods of rain this weekend with the focus in the central and south central areas of the southern plains. In crop areas of Brazil, useful and needed rain developed yesterday through early today with moderate to locally heavy amounts. Coverage included Mato Grosso, the largest soybean crop production state. Additional rain is predicted seven days from now that will be useful for crop development. Argentina expects light to moderate rain the next seven days. Something that will be watched is coverage that is forecast to expand to include most all central crop areas of Argentina. Dryness a high concern in central Argentina, especially with the well-established La Nina. I'm Paul Perkins. That's a check of your ag weather. Alex Wojcicki reporting on the Rural Radio Network. And today we're joined by Greg Anderson. He is a Nebraska soybean farmer and also serves on the board of the National Biodiesel Board. Uh, Greg, thanks so much for being with us. We were chatting before we came on air that the Vision 2020 mission of the National Biodiesel Board is on track. Uh, Can you give us an update on this vision and what it is? Well, we're looking at growing the biodiesel industry, and the biodiesel industry has grown, but we want to take it to the next level to ensure that Biodiesel, renewable diesel are part of our nation's energy supply, and it's a a very, very important uh, part, uh, that is. We're seeing that uh, the goal and the design for this vision is 6 billion gallon 
uh, usage by the year 2030. That's only 10 years away, and yet uh, we see that we have the feedstock to do that. We have the infrastructure to and production plants capacity to do that, as well as uh, the market demanding this fuel, not only on both coasts, but uh, growing uh, markets here in the Midwest. So, Greg, biodiesel doesn't necessarily follow the trends of ethanol, but provide us an update of what you're seeing in biodiesel trends as we sit right now. Well, we've seen a a coronavirus impact on the biodiesel industry to some extent. However, the loss of demand uh, simply isn't quite as much there as it was for gasoline. In these continuing months, biodiesel and renewable diesel production has remained very steady. In fact, numbers are consistent with the same months from a year ago. So that strength in volume, even when overall diesel demand is down just a bit, uh, likely driven by growing state policies because uh, we have a lot of state policies across the country that result in a preference and even incentivize uh, low-carbon transportation fuels like biodiesel and renewable diesel. And, uh, you know, our industry uses a wide variety of feedstocks. We saw that cooking oil supplies have been reduced in, uh, due to shelter-in-place orders nationwide. Uh, with that, uh, that shows a diversity of uh, biodiesel, renewable diesel. It shows the strength and the, the reach that we have it. No matter if we face some headwinds, we can still supply this fuel uh, across the country in a very you know, efficient and uh, effective economical manner. Absolutely. You're talking about those uncertainties, the ups and downs and everything. But overall, um, like you said, it's pretty good news for farmers when we're seeing steady production in the biodiesel world. Well, definitely. You know, I I think about the the strongest talking point that farmers can really relate to is that the demand for soybean oil in the past 10 years has grown 300% for biodiesel. We have now a market that is commanding large amounts of soybean oil, which we have grow every year large amounts of soybean oil that need a market. Uh, Last year, producers used about 8 billion pounds of soybean oil for biodiesel and renewable diesel. And as our industry will strive to meet that 6 billion gallon goal by 2030, there's going to be continued uh, dependence on farmers to supply that uh, 6 billion gallon industry in 2030 is going to need three times the amount of soybean oil each year, about 18 billion pounds, uh, a little over two two and a half times what we're using now. So (laughs) that's a lot of opportunity. Absolutely. All right. Thanks, as always, for the insight, Greg. That, again, is Greg Anderson joining us. He is a board member on the Nebraska Biodiesel Board, also a soybean farmer from Nebraska. Broadcasting from the Nebraska Soybean Board News Desk, which is brought to you in part by Nebraska Soybean Farmers and their checkoff, you're listening to the Rural Radio Network. It's time for Midday Sports. Here's Jason. Hey, thanks, Tyler. Well, Nebraska's very young offense continues to try to make strides this offseason. The Huskers played eight freshmen on that side of the ball, and offensive coordinator Matt Lubick talks about how they did. You definitely don't change your standards because at the end of the day, we're going out there to win. We're going to play the best players, whether they're freshmen or whether they're seniors. And so they, they got to know what the standards are, and we got to demand their best. But at the same time, uh, we got to build their confidence. That's a big thing with freshmen is, is put them in situations where they can succeed. And I don't, I don't know if patience is the word, but I'd say more positivity, uh, making them understand, hey, these are the things, and, and you can do it, and being positive about it. The Huskers will look for their second win in a row on Saturday when they host Illinois at 11. We'll bring you that game here on 880 KR. 
UNK begins its basketball seasons tonight at home against Emporia State. Loper men are coming off a year in which they finished seventh in the MIAA. Now, with no non-conference schedule this year, head coach Kevin Lofton says it does make things going into this season somewhat interesting. But you get to you get to watch what they're doing on film and game plan and, and just kind of figure it all out. And you really don't get that opportunity in this situation. You know, they could run some of the things that they ran last year, or they could have totally turned, you know, changed. You know, you, you just don't know. Tip off the men's game is set for 7.30 with a women's game at 5.30. We will bring you those games on our sister station, 93.1 The River, 106.9 FM in and around Kearney. And you can listen in on the River app. Once again, no fans will be allowed into the game only immediate family members. Well, the Big Ten Conference finally released its men's basketball conference schedule yesterday, and the high schools were given a lot to chew on. Half of Nebraska's conference games are against teams ranked in the top 25 of the AP preseason rankings. Nebraska's 20-game conference schedule begins on Monday, December 21st, when the Huskers travel to Madison to take on defending Big Ten co-champion Wisconsin. Nebraska's home opener is set for Christmas when they welcome in Michigan. And keep your eyes on this. The executive board of the Kansas State High School Activities Association voted yesterday on a proposal to delay the start of the winter sports season to the middle of January. The proposal would exclude fans from January 15th through the 28th. Then limited fans would be allowed in January 29th through the remainder of the winter season in locations where fans are allowed. Masks would be mandatory except for the athletes and the coaches and the refs. Now, the proposal would also reduce the basketball season to 13 games. The executive board unanimously approved the proposal. The final vote now goes to a special board of directors meeting next week. That is a look at sports. For more, you can find it anytime at krvn.com. I'm Jason Jorgensen. Time for midday news. Ellen Simmons has stepped in. And, well, Ellen, things are uh, a little busy right now, uh, especially with COVID. It seems like that's just uh, going crazy right now in the region. Yes. So Two Rivers Public Health Department in Kearney reported seven additional deaths in the district as a result of COVID-19. The individuals were a male in his 70s, a female in her 80s, and a male in his 80s from Buffalo County. Uh, also, a male in his 70s from Phelps County, two males in their 80s, and a male in his 90s from Dawson County. Two Rivers strongly urges everyone to stay home when sick, wear face masks while in the community and in public, and ensure proper hand washing is exercised to help prevent further spread of the virus. If you have tested for the virus and are awaiting results, they need to stay home until results are received. And if businesses have questions on how to help protect their employees and customers, they can reach out to the Two Rivers office. In other news for the coronavirus, health officials say Nebraska hospitals are straining to cope with the surge in coronavirus cases, and they urge the public to wear masks and take other precautionary measures, even if they aren't legally required to do so. The state said 21% of Nebraska's hospital beds are filled with COVID-19 patients on Wednesday. Governor Peter Ricketts said he will impose more social distancing restrictions if that figure reaches 25% of all hospitals. The state reported its second highest daily total of confirmed cases on Wednesday, 2,812, raising its overall total since the pandemic started to 106,617. It also reported 10 new COVID-19 deaths, raising the state death toll to 826. The Nebraska Department of Revenue and Tax Commissioner Tony Fulton announced three Nebraska towns 
will be increasing their local sales and use tax rates from 1% to 1.5%. These changes will go into effect January 1, 2021. The three towns increasing their sales tax are Gordon, Greeley, and Junietta. For more information on this sales and use tax, tax increase, go to the Nebraska Department of Revenue website at revenue.nebraska.gov under the sales and use tax link. The Nebraska Department of Motor Vehicles is reminding customers that most of the services offered by the DMV can be safely done online as state DMV and county offices seek to densify and uh, reduce in-person interactions. Dozens of services are available online, including common services such as renewing a driver's license, state ID card, and vehicle registration, ordering specialty plates, applying for handicap permits, and more. DMV Director Rhonda Lamb says that by providing these services online, they are able to ensure the health and safety of their customers and teams, team members, particularly as hospitalizations increase in Nebraska. Well, you can find more news at krvn.com. Thank you very much, Ellen. So how was ag policy going to look into this next administration? Good afternoon. I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. The National Association of Farm Broadcasting is holding their annual convention virtual this year. One of our speakers yesterday was Jay Truitt. He is the owner of the consulting firm Policy Solutions, LLC. As he talks about the policy and the field change we're going to have when it comes to agriculture. And with some key leadership changes in agriculture, that brings up some concerns as well. Absolutely. Um, and I think the, 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 the later point that you made regarding uh, the leadership uh, voids that have been created by the departure of some really key people um, end up being the, maybe the dominating factor in how the next farm bill comes together. This is nothing against um, who we all anticipate will be the new leaders that move into the, the House Ag Committee, and you can kind of uh, start guessing at how it works out uh, uh, on the Senate side as well. Uh, we'll have to wait for final numbers right uh, out of Georgia to know what that is. But you, you can't just remove a Pat Roberts and a Colin Peterson who bring 45 years of, of historical perspective and know all the mistakes that we've made in addition to the things that we did that kind of worked right or that we could afford or that seemed to give us the biggest bang for our buck. You can't remove them from the process and just think it's going to it's going to be the same. Um, the rest of the people that sit in those rooms don't have that same level of expertise and experience. Um, sure, we're still going to have Southern versus Midwest and some Northern and specialty crop versus everybody else. The livestock folks will pretend like they don't care what's in Title One and Title Two, um, but the truth is it'll matter immensely what the conservation program looks like. A President Biden promised that he was going to take a look at maybe doing more set-asides and taking some acres out of production. That'll send a, a, a fear into the livestock sector because they like oversupplies of all of those things to keep prices uh, uh, in a moderate level. How it actually plays out, I think kind of as in the past, somebody will rise to the occasion and we'll see somebody take those reins in both, both the House and the Senate 
Truett went on to stress that the making of the policy comes from these committees, not the administration. But there has been concern about losing folks like the Pat Roberts and the Colin Petersons and the work that they've done for agriculture. But there is no way that you can deny that the voids created by uh, Colin Peterson and Pat Roberts not being in the room, Mr. Conway as well, and, and a handful of other members, um, that there won't be a real. That, that, that'll be a game changer for some people. Mike Torrey is with Edge Dairy Farmer Cooperative, and a question was brought up, how much influence will committees from those that are in the urban setting as congressman and senator? Well, I would offer that I, I agree with everything that Jay said. I think as we move into this session, agriculture is going to face a couple of, of uh, headwinds. Number one is going to be money. I think everybody understands how much has been spent uh, through the market um, facilitation program payments and also the COVID payments for agriculture. Monies they didn't ask for, but monies that happened as a result of um, several policies and, and actions and activities in the last four years. And then with what's happened with COVID as a whole and ag spending always comes under scrutiny and I think it will again. So that's gonna be um, obstacle one. And obstacle two, Ken, to your point, is going to be this balance of social economic policy. Um, obviously, ag committees are normally focused on commodity programs and hunger programs, but a number of members of Congress have joined the committee from urban areas because of hunger and feeding programs specifically. And so there is going to be a little bit of a conflict. And the bigger challenge goes to what Jay just said in terms of the um, caucuses. The Democratic caucus had Colin Peterson, who abdicated strongly. He's gone. He was able to convince a lot of urban members to come along, and uh, that's gone. So really, for all of us in agriculture, who's going to be the person that steps up to the plate in that regard? Uh, going over to the Senate side, you know, I don't see as much of a change uh, with um, a lot of those folks, obviously a little bit more steady and seasoned and have been around for a while, and they all have a little bit higher priority for agriculture in rural America because all of their states have it. So the, the challenge is going to be there, and uh, that's, we'll see what happens comes what type of influence would these urban congressmen and senators have and would we see some unique forms of agriculture float to the surface yeah i do i mean if you if you look at kind of the um the constituency for the the democratic party um normally they come at these issues and we saw this during the obama administration and i believe we'll see it during the biden administration they come at these issues uh, more nutrition focused. And I want to offer up the difference between hunger and nutrition because it's very, very important to note. Hunger programs are about feeding programs. Nutrition programs or nutrition conversations and policy tend to be about the quality and the types of food that we, that we eat. But the nutrition community tends to be a little bit more critical of production agriculture. And as both said, interesting times ahead in 2021. From the virtual NAFB convention, I'm Susan Littlefield on the Rural Radio Network. Well, stocks were trading lower earlier today on Wall Street as mounting coronavirus infections and evidence of the damage being caused to people's lives rolls in. The number of Americans seeking unemployment aid rose last week for the first time in five weeks. The latest sign that a resurgence in virus infections is leading employers to cut jobs. 
The modest recovery in the U.S. economy is increasingly at risk. Newly confirmed daily infections in the country have jumped 80% over the past two weeks, leading to greater restrictions on businesses, social gatherings, and kids going to school. Meanwhile, as we mentioned earlier, the number of employment aid rose last week to 742,000. That's the first increase in five weeks and, of course, uh, the sign that the viral outbreak is likely slowing the economy. The Labor Department showed the applications for benefits rose from 711,000 in the previous week. Claims had soared to 6.9 million in March when the pandemic first intensified. Before the pandemic, applications typically hovered around 225,000 a week. The economy's modest recovery is increasingly at risk, with newly confirmed daily infections in the U.S. having exploded 80% over the past two weeks to the highest levels on record. Chinese uh, President Xi Jinping has spurned suggestions that his country might separate itself from the U.S. and other trading partners amid tension with Washington and Europe over technology and security. He says he promised to open China's market wider, but announced no initiatives to respond to complaints that the ruling Communist Party subsidizes and shields technology and other industries from foreign competitors. I'm Dave Schroeder on the Business Report. Taking a closer look at body condition scoring, I'm Shaylee Peters joining you back on the Rural Video Network. And we're going to hear today from Dr. Travis Mullinex with the West Central Research and Extension Center. He was recently on one of the Beef Watch webinars and just starts us off today by talking about why body condition scoring is important. One, there's a close relationship between body condition scoring calving and the first nine days after calving to a reproductive success. And this is important. Uh, there, there's historically, I'll show you some data later on that that body condition score, one of the most important things about body condition score is, is just driven to reproductive success. Am I setting those cows up uh, to be able to succeed in that management the environment that, that we manage? Another aspect that's very important is calf's immune system. And I'll show you some data that that calves from thin cows have issues with immune function, immune health. And, and so if I'm constantly weaning or constantly calving thin, thin cows, I can have calves that have some compromised immune function due to that fact. Um, and, and so that, that's an important thing to take into account. I know two years ago when we went through that that winter, feeders were scared to death to buy calves out of Nebraska. And there was a lot of concern because of the state of those cows and, and the amount of sickness that could occur in those calves once they were received. Um, and so body condition score of that dam can play a big role in immune function of that resulting calf um, that's born um, um, maybe a little bit later on. Mullenix also goes into other considerations when looking at body condition scoring and what may be impacting it. Uh, so current body condition score is a result of what could be a balance between nutrient supply and recent nutrient requirements. So understanding cow nutrient requirements 
And where is my forward supply or, or, or whatever nutritional management strategy I have, what is the direction that I'm going? And, and so, so if they're losing body weight, we're having a deficiency somewhere in that system. If they're gaining body weight, we have a surplus. Um, management can play a role in what the current body condition score of that cow is. And then lastly, and this is something I see a lot, is a, a match or a mismatch of ge cow's genetic potential in that forage or management system that you have. If I'm selecting for animals from a genetic base that do not fit my environment, whether or not it's too much or too little, I can be have cows that are way too thin or I have cows that, that carry a lot more weight. That, that carry a lot more condition year-round. And so we don't want cows on either end of that. You know, we, we want cows that, that kind of hit that moderate body business for year-round. Again, hearing today from Dr. Travis Molinex. He's with the West Central Research and Extension Center from his November 17th webinar, Body Condition Scoring. The Beef Watch webinar series continues through November, with the next one being November 24th, where they have Beef Watch talk and a chat with the experts. You can register at beef.unl.edu. We also have more information up about the entire series at ruralradio.com. You're listening to the Rural Radio Network. <laughs> Clay Patton on the World Radio Network as we talk with John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel's Ag Marketing in Chicago, publisher of the newsletter this week in Grain. John, as we come across on the day's close, soybeans once again clinch to just limited gains on the day, but if they don't start to see some support from the corn and wheat market, can they continue this trend? Yeah, I think that the real more important markets to watch are soybean oil and soybean meal, and both of those I think look very stout here uh, and will most likely trade higher. I think in the case of oil, you know, we're the only people really selling it right now. So if beans would fall and those markets don't, you're just going to incentivize crush. So I think USDA in the coming reports will have to bring down these stocks already. And uh, I mean, the talk is that China's going to buy 43.1 billion bushels of that or billion dollars worth of ag goods next year. Well, I mean, we're going to run through some of this stuff. So I, I'm, I think there's more up here. Um, you know, haven't seen a turn in the currencies yet, which is what I really would like to see, um, in the case of beans anyway. Uh, for corn, you know, if beans go up, it's, if corn's going to fall to a lesser degree, probably tied between that and wheat. Wheat futures here just bouncing around with delivery a week away. I, I, I think we, we kind of chop here through the Thanksgiving holiday, and I think we will resume or make another run up to $6 again on July KC. Obviously, with these type of bullish fundamentals in the soybean market, maybe marketers want to hold on for excess or look at their strategy over the next two weeks. But for the corn and for the wheat markets, where we still look to have adequate supply in the U.S. in terms of that U.S. stocks carryout, is now the time to still be considering that marketing options, just given the current near record highs we have. Well, I mean, it depends on your need for cash flow. I think a lot of people probably have till late February to move the bushels. I don't think you're going to see the markets break much before then outside of something that would be you know, unforeseen in a you know, presidential election or new relationships with, with trade partners. Um, those are all things that could change it, but I don't think the fundamental carryover is going to change at all. And so you'll get March futures here trading down near 430. I think four, four, you know, 435, 440, you know, let it fly a little bit here, and maybe look at some July options or something in the July futures, or even September. You're getting discounts in those deferred contracts. 
So I think corn's got a lot of work to do on the new crop even. That might be a better place to be long is next year's contracts, given that uh, you know, if we're going to need to need to replenish the bean supply for the globe, it's uh, it's going to come at the expense of corn. That is John Payne, Senior Marketing Analyst with Daniel Zag Marketing and Chicago Publisher of the newsletter This Week in Grain. You can always learn more at danielzagmarketing.com. Again, danielzagmarketing.com. That's where you can sign up for John's daily newsletter called This Week in Grain. Do remember, though, trading futures and options involve risk of loss. It may not be suitable for all investors. Do consider these risks before investing. We're going to see wheat close, or excuse me, soybeans close nearly a tenth of a percent higher while we're nearly one to two percent lower on the corn and wheat markets. Thank you very much, Clay. That'll wrap up this Thursday edition of Midday. You can listen to our Midday podcast sponsored by Devaney Motors on any Android or Apple device or, of course, at krvn.com.